0: Welcome to the Los Angeles Review of Books podcast. Once again, legal affairs editor Don Franzen. We're here with Boz Dreisinger, the author of the acclaimed new book, Incarceration Nations, in which she probed the systems of incarceration around the world, covering, I think, a total of nine different countries, as well as our own, the United States. We're very happy to be able to talk to you this afternoon, Boz.
1: I'm thrilled to be here.
0: So the impetus for your book, as I uh, read the opening chapter, was really your investigation of the prison system in the United States and the questions that it raised for you about what its purposes and effects were. Could you talk a little bit about what it was about the American prison system uh, that you felt needed some more deeper study, let's say?
1: Well, I think it was the idea that we're called a Department of Corrections, and yet there didn't seem to be that much correcting going on. And, uh, and, and of course, my program, I had started a program called the Prison to College Pipeline. It's a university program behind bars that funnels people into the uh, college system when they come home. And that was a move in the direction of let's actually live up to this term Department of Corrections. Uh, But also looking at our success rate in this country, thinking about having a 60-something percent recidivism rate, clearly is indicative that something is not working here, something is broken here. Uh, And that when people were talking about reform and and, uh, fixing the system, it seemed to me that they were kind of missing a few things in that conversation. And one of them was the global context of all of this. And the other one was the fundamental kind of philosophical moral issues at stake when we talk about punishment and corrections and prisons.
0: Well, your opening chapter, your introduction talks about the state of American prisons, the high incarceration rate we have in this country, one without precedent in any other nation, um, except maybe uh, Iran. I'm not sure if anybody beats us in terms (laughs) of percentage of incarcerations. Um, and the cost of the system and I take it that uh, you thought uh, you should perhaps look elsewhere around the world and see what you could learn from what people are doing in other systems.
1: Yeah, I wanted to learn from what's happening elsewhere uh, and I also wanted to expose what's happening elsewhere because it's, you know, we are, so many of us are global citizens and, and certainly America is inimitable in its prison population, in the length of its sentences, in its use of the death penalty and life in prison. There are only nine countries that do that in the world. Um, but there's also these kinds of atrocities that are happening globally that need to be addressed. And that are in many ways were produced by us, having invented, America invented the modern prison system and, and essentially the world copycatted it in one form or another.
0: A lot of people are speaking of a humanitarian crisis in the United States uh, in terms of the number uh, and ethnicity of uh, people that are in our prisons. And I think you, as you just said, you found that some of the short, Some of our shortcomings have been exported. is that uh, is
1: yes, it- and certainly, with regard to uh, the kinds of populations who are being incarcerated and criminalized this is a, this is a global issue in this country uh, as has been well documented, the criminal justice system has targeted people of color uh... for for centuries now and targeted poor people but it was striking to see the same pattern in other countries whether it's aboriginal populations in australia um... whether it's uh... black folks in brazil or post-slavery black and quote-unquote colored people in south africa it's sort of the same pattern of criminalizing an entire group that's defined as other and then funneling them into the prison system
0: well you started your international journey in really one of the most distressed, uh, historically distressed uh, countries on earth, Rwanda. And there you saw some interesting themes in their system, as you put it, revenge and reconciliation. Uh, could you give us a background on that? What, what is it about, uh, what are the distinctive features of the Ru- Rwandan uh, prison system?
1: So Rwanda, of course, experienced a a mass genocide in which uh, almost a million people were killed in about 90 days. And Rwanda's response to this was extraordinarily unique in the world. Instead of, initially, they, they... caught as many people as they could, locked them up, but recognized that the prison system was so overcrowding, people were literally um, sleeping on top of each other. There was no room for the system to handle this. They'd never uh, experienced this level of prison population. So what they did was they instituted gachacha courts, which were essentially community courts where people had the opportunity to air their grievances against those who harmed them and others, And um, then there was also an international tribunal. There were a number of different methods that Rwanda took. Uh, in order to address the genocide and then ended up ultimately freeing lots of the prison population creating systems of restitution and reparations for the harm and uh, it's been peaceful ever since and it's certainly one of the most famous and the most successful examples of a, an alternative system to justice that isn't, that's grounded in restitution and reparations and reconciliation as opposed to punishment and revenge and harm so that was why I went there first.
0: And, and going through that, you remind me of what they taught us in law school that there were principally three purposes of the criminal law: uh, punishment, rehabilitation, and um, deterrence. So here you're saying in Rwanda, they really focused on on a kind of a fourth prong, which is reconciliation and and reintegrating. Um, uh, the people that were guilty of these horrible acts back into society. Is that, is yeah, that the lesson I, there?
1: It is. I, I would say it's even it's an alternative prong altogether because it shies away from the other approaches. And
0: it's a fourth a fourth way.
1: Yeah, it's a different paradigm. I mean, it's restorative justice. It's a different way of conceiving of crime and
0: justice. And you saw to some you saw the same thing in South Africa also.
1: And South Africa, yes, had a um, a national, grand national example of the same kind of thing, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission post-apartheid. To less successful results, it's generally agreed. But, um, and so, I was more interested in focusing on the legacy of restorative justice on a kind of one to one level in South Africa, and so I worked in Polesmore Prison, which is a very notorious prison around the world and it's the largest prison in Africa, and looked at how restorative justice and reconciliation programs can do good in the context of individual people in prison
0: then no, another no, the two other countries you looked at with um a somewhat different approach, trying to use the arts as a way of healing uh, people that find themselves enmeshed in the in the prison system. That was Uganda. And Jamaica. What did you What did you learn in those two countries?
1: In Uganda, I uh, launched a creative writing workshop in a prison, a very, very notoriously overcrowded and difficult prison, full of essentially poor people who couldn't pay the bribes to get out or or the fees to get out. Uh, and so I looked at creative writing there. And in, in Jamaica, I visited a reggae program, a music program inside a prison, and. It's, it's sort of very well documented that the arts do wonderful things for human beings and certainly human beings in prison. Rehabilitation through the arts is one of the major programs that does it in our on our shores. Uh, and so I, I wanted to see that at work and it, it does do powerful things. It changes people's consciousness. But it's also in the book, I call it a band-aid on an amputated limb because it's not going to solve the problem. We can't Uh, unless we're addressing systemic problems with the system and structural racisms and inequalities that produce it, we're not going to solve it with creative writing class or music. And yet at the same time, given the traumatic state of these prisons, both in Kingston, Jamaica, and in Kampala, Uganda, which are dramatic examples of overcrowded, horrific conditions in prisons, the arts are serving a purpose there.
0: I'm... um... I can't help but think of the uh, the last scene in Mel Brooks the Producers when you know Max Bialystok is putting on a show in prison <laughs> and probably selling a thousand right. percent of it again. But <laughs> Yeah.
1: It gets a lot of press whenever these things happen, of course, because people love to see oh the you know, the people in prison are doing theater and they're doing uh performance and music. There were two in fact this the Grammys, which uh just passed. There were two, two nominees uh, in the foreign category who came from prison, uh, one from Mali and the other from Jamaica. Interestingly enough, the Jamaican nominee uh, got his start in this program that I visited in Jamaica.
0: So would you think that that um, is something that we could learn from in this country as well?
1: It is, it is, and we should have as many. I mean, while we're stuck in this, or mired, rather, in this system of justice, we should try to make these places as humane as possible, and we should truly mean what we say when we say Department of Corrections. The arts is very important in that. I'm an English professor, so I definitely believe in the power of language and and art and
0: the word. You also traveled to Thailand, and there you made some other interesting observations. Can you tell us about what you, what you learned from that visit?
1: I worked with women in prison in Thailand, and I did that because I had heard about the princess of Thailand. One of the princesses of Thailand is very invested in female incarceration issues. And so she's created an NGO which has set up model prisons, quote-unquote model prisons, around the country for women. And so I, I had the chance to, speaking of drama, co-lead a drama workshop in those prisons and also be part of the delegation that went out. I went out twice to Thailand to work with this organization and, uh, I mean, it was, overall, it's an incredibly depressing state of affairs when we talk about women, because they are the fastest, globally, the fastest rising population in prisons. And most of the time, generally speaking, this is true in the U.S. and it's true around the world, they are uh, foot soldiers in a much larger drug trade, and they've been kind of hapless victims of usually partners or husbands. And so what I saw in Thailand, which is a very exaggerated case of that, is pretty much the same as what's happening in this country. There are about 25,000 women incarcerated in Thailand and about 21, 22,000 of them are in for drug offenses and serving very long, very long Mm -hmm. draconian sentences.
0: Do you think the um, efforts by the Princesses NGO are, are having any positive effects?
1: A small dent, and um, which is to be applauded still, I think that uh, one of the things that was pretty incredible that happened in, in, and I talk about in the book was that they, after I did this initial visit and led this workshop and met the folks in in this NGO, um, they invited me and some other people back to Thailand to meet the princess herself, and she staged this grand event in the hub of her model prison system that was all over the news and and I think there's value to that, because it's people seeing, hey, the princess cares, and the princess is a, is an icon in Thailand, and so if she cares about this population and these people, then maybe we should all care. So it's making a small dent. I think make, creating a kind of model prison, quote-unquote, can have value because it can impact public opinion.
0: Mm-hmm. But if it's only a model, sort of a Potemkin village type uh, Um, fabrication that it doesn't really necessarily carry out into the whole system.
1: No, it's got to be followed up with um, things to come from it, and it's still a relatively new organization, so that could still happen. I mean, by no means, the, and then it certainly also should impact the men's prisons in Thailand, which are notoriously awful. I have briefly visited one, and the conditions that I heard about for both the incarcerated and the corrections officers were frightening. The corrections officers were facing enormous amounts of violence and um, tra- traumatic stress. It's, it's really terrible for both sets.
0: One of the most depressing chapters in your, in your book, uh, which I have to say is, was not exactly a light-hearted book, but, <laughs> <laughs> no, <laughs> but, but one of the most distressing chapters was the, the chapter in Brazil where it seems that um, the Brazilians have adopted maybe the, the very worst features of the, of the American system, which is supermax prisons and solitary confinement. So what did you observe in, in, your, in your review of those, uh, those prisons?
1: Yes, Brazil was certainly the most depressing of all the visits that I made, I think, although I'm not sure how to quantify. <laughs> there is a lot of depression in, in the book. But um, the the Brazilians have done what a lot of countries are doing, which is imitate this supermax model and imitate solitary confinement, another American invention. We were, in in the 19th century, created this, this model of solitary. And what I saw in Brazil is what... Uh, pretty much anyone who witnesses the extent of solitary confinement sees, which is people really going mad from this practice that is by far cruel and unusual punishment and torture. And I, I was in a, a federal supermax in Brazil that's locking people in their cells for 22 hours a day, and... It, they're claim it's they claim that they're the worst of the worst, quote unquote. But when you start probing what that actually means, you realize it can it can not be such a dramatic infraction. And this is true on our shores as well. You can get thrown in solitary for uh, something called reckless eyeballing, which means looking at a corrections officer the wrong way. So, it, and and the impacts of that are dramatic. I mean, the psychological studies and I cite. Many of these in the book, the psychological studies show again and again that solitary makes people mad. And so we are literally torturing people, and then if you readmit them to the general population, and then eventually to the world, what are we returning to, to us, to society? Um, and Brazil has really invested in this model to an unprecedented degree in the past 10 years, building five of these supermaxes around the country.
0: Well, that's, sort of, that's an alarming trend. Um, it's sad to think that um, it started in this country, but you also spend a bit of time in your book talking about how we even got to having prisons. I mean, prisons are a relatively modern invention, right? And you discuss some of the sociological and economic uh, conditions that led to even creating a prison system, maybe you could talk about that for a minute,
1: yeah, I think that fact that they are a modern a relatively modern recent invention is kind of news to most people um and is is really significant because people just assume oh there 's always been prisons they 've been around. Forever, That's just how you deal with crime in the world. Um, But in fact, uh, in in a nutshell, what happened is that starting in prior to the 18th century, there were all kinds of other ways of dealing with crime in communities, many of them barbaric as well, executions and such, the guillotine, Um, but others maybe not so much, like restorative justice approaches that were particularly happening in communities on the African continent. Um, And then, of course, uh, banishment, penal colonies and things like that. But what had happened in the late 18th century is you had a number of European theorists talking about French and England in particular, talking about maybe there's another way to do this in a more civilized fashion um, and a more organized fashion along the lines of the age of reason um, and the age of capitalism. How can we kind of create a factory-like situation for dealing with crime? And so America, when it, uh, you know, as it was born as a nation, decided as a show of its progressivism to enact these theories and built what are considered the first two modern prisons in Pennsylvania and New York. And from that, it was uh, the rest of the world sort of followed suit. A lot of people came to famous visitors, leaders, writers like Dickens, Charles Dickens, and Alexis de Tocqueville. They all came to see these prisons. and via um, colonialism spread them around the globe and so it's been this game of and and for me even knowing about the history of the prison system this was a revelation that uh, number one how much of a role we played in exporting uh, a system altogether and number two the fact of the connection of how deeply woven prisons are into the birth of our nation and the birth of our democracy, ironically.
0: Yeah, you make that point that the the country that uh, brought uh, liberty to the world also brought the prison system to the world. Yes, yes. And among our exports uh, to Australia, it seems, and some of the other Commonwealth countries, is uh, a privatization movement among prisons. Which it seemed, as I looked at your chapter, it seems you have some mixed feelings about that.
1: Well, I have. A bit
0: conflicted. A bit conflicted.
1: I was conflicted in terms of what I saw. I'm not conflicted about um, the, the way the private prison industry exists today. It exists today as an awful, evil, profit making enterprise. And, you know, I want to be really clear about that because. Um, Private prisons, as we allow them to have control over our legislation, as they're making profit off human suffering, as they're pushing for all kinds of draconian uh, crime bills, it's appalling and it's nightmarish. And so there's no ifs, ands, or buts about that.
0: They make money off of longer prison sentences.
1: Yes, and, and more, um, and generally criminalization. And, and,
0: and more, yeah, and more crimes.
1: Right, yeah. So they're pushing for more crime. They're pushing for longer sentences to deal with these crimes. Um, the, the conflict I had in Australia was that a, uh, the pr- private prisons that I visited happened to be doing some pretty progressive things and um and and sometimes we're measured by a different set of standards i mean i visited a private prison in australia that was basically an open prison it was for young men between the ages of 18 and 24 so they're adults it's an adult prison, but they're quite young, obviously, and vulnerable. So they were participating in restorative justice workshops. It was like a campus, really, not a prison. And I was really moved by that. And I do think that part of the reason for that experimentation was that, and this is what everyone told me, that within the private system, there might be more room for innovation. There's less red tape, and you're kind of allowed to innovate and be creative. So that doesn't justify the appalling private prison industry in Australia, where the largest number of people are in private prisons in in, in the world, um, and, and especially immigration detention centers. That's a big issue on our shores as well, the number of immigration detention centers that are run by private companies who so are thus making money off deportation and Uh, It doesn't justify any of that, but it does mean that there is something to think about in terms of innovative models and what can happen if people are given the freedom to pursue them.
0: That's very interesting because you you want to think that, um, you wonder, is there any way to uh, incentivize them to turn out more socialized human beings uh, than our our state-run systems uh, seem to be doing, because yep. there doesn't seem to be much interest in that, at least in California and most jurisdictions in the United States.
1: No, exactly. I mean, what would our justice system like look like if we used a, a different set of standards as opposed to recidivism rate um, and you know, and economics? What if, it were, what if there were deeper standards? The other thing about private prisons, I should say, too, is that um, it's, it's a bit too convenient of a villain that, unfortunately, when people talk about it, they're then letting the state prisons off the hook. And um, as if you know, it's only the private prisons who are engaged in these nefarious capitalist practices. The state prisons are mired in them as well. For everything from, I mean, we're we're in California right now. Uh, at one point, I think it's still the case. The school, all the school desks for uh, California universities, public universities, were made in prisons. Mm-hmm. Um, there's the phone company. There, there are so many industries that are. Tied in with our prison system, so to focus only on private prisons when we're not implicating the whole system as being implicated is a problem.
0: And the prison industry is a very powerful lobby in the state, and the prison guard mm-hmm. union, very powerful lobby. They really entrenched themselves as a as it's become a force that just demands resources mm-hmm. and and. Uh, and as you indicated earlier, oftentimes uh, these kinds of things are resistant to change and reform. Absolutely. You also visited Singapore, which we all know uh, you can go to jail forever for chewing gum in public or something equivalent like to that in Singapore. But it seemed you were in some ways impressed by their system.
1: I was impressed by one aspect of their system, certainly not the chewing gum in public part. Not, not necessarily the severity. Uh, the severity, of the, the severity yeah. not, but... Um, nor the prison, the actual prison itself, I wasn't impressed by. What I was impressed by is their commitment to what we call prisoner reentry, which is the process by which people come home and are reintegrated. And I went specifically to Singapore to look at something called the Yellow Ribbon Project, which is uh, about promoting acceptance of formerly incarcerated people, providing jobs for them, providing scholarship opportunities, uh, and insurance and they have Singapore is one of the lowest recidivism rates in the world for a whole host of reasons and and um, some good and some a little frightening uh, they have about twenty percent twenty five percent recidivism rate and they have an incredible rate of placing their formerly incarcerated people in jobs they have a ninety eight percent what they call emplacement rate and so they get jobs for people there and I really was particularly impressed by the um the campaign that they had they have a sort of Marketing campaign promoting acceptance of formerly incarcerated people. I'd get into a taxi and someone had a yellow ribbon on their um, on their taxi to show solidarity with and support for and. They have an ad campaign, TV ads, and also print ads, they have events. So that small aspect, um, which is a very significant aspect of their system, I was impressed by. On the other hand, you're, re, you know, you're, you're reintegrating people who maybe should not have been in prison in the first place because they were there for such a small thing, and also what they endured. Singapore, of course, still practices caning, which is a horrific practice. And so there's a lot of work to be done.
0: You mentioned that um, the uh, low recidivism rate in Singapore, the last country you visited, uh, Norway, uh, you found the same thing, and you also found that uh, in Norway there was a lack of stigma for having uh, done time in prison. In fact, you found... uh, I'd say if there's a hopeful chapter in your book, it's the Norwegian chapter, so (laughs) tell us a bit about what you learned up in that uh, uh, dark, cold, snowy country.
1: Yeah, dark, dark, cold, snowy, and in many ways quite wonderful country that uh, has almost a socialist ethos. It's almost a wealthy socialist country. It's very there's a communitarian spirit that I saw enacted in Norway that was very moving to witness. And the most famous example of that, and now it's gotten even more famous as it's in Michael Moore's new documentary, is Bastoy Prison, which is a an island open prison the the uh, people who live there come and go and work jobs and sometimes spend weekends home with family and it's run like an, it's a nature reserve and it 's really run as as a kind of camp and that prison is 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 evidence of the Norwegian commitment to keeping people integrated in society even while they're in prison. They have something called the principle of normality, which is you go to prison but you're still part of the same community, we keep you close to it physically, we, you're still tied in with the same health care services that you were receiving on the outside with family members, uh, and that's really quite amazing. And, and the other thing, and this is one of the things that I think is applicable to our country is the background of corrections officers in Norway. I visited the staff training academy and met with the head the head of the staff training academy for for corrections officers in Norway and they study philosophy, law, social work, psychology. They don't study military tactics and criminal criminology. Uh, and that is everything in the way that people are interacting in the context of a prison and capable of producing, again, corrections.
0: Now, Norway, of course, is a very wealthy country, thanks in part to the North Sea oil, but generally wealthy, and a very homogeneous population. So I think the question that comes to mind is, how much of the Norwegian example can we realistically hope to absorb into our own country, which is uh, so different in terms of its composition and its economics and its uh, uh, variances in income? Um, what do you think? Do you think there are lessons that we can draw from Norway?
1: There are absolutely lessons. And actually, we are drawing them, incidentally. I, I'm still in touch with the, the warden, the head, who's called the governor of that prison in Norway. He, told, he recently sent me an email saying, gosh, we've never received so many American visitors to this prison before. I hope they're taking some, some good information back. Um, so I, I think that it's in effect already. But what I just described in terms of an open prison model, that doesn't require necessarily a lot of money, Um, What I just described in terms of staff training, that's applicable, again, without huge sums of money, thinking differently about training and the kinds of people that we put into our system um, in terms of reintegration doesn't require a lot of money. And then there are aspects of, of the social welfare program in Norway that are applicable for us as well. I mean, reforming the system is not only about... You can't think of prison reform in a vacuum. It's connected to social services and preventing people from ending up in prison in the first place, moving towards equality. One thing that Norway does well is equality. And um, there may be a lot of wealth, but it's evenly distributed. And it's not an accident that, therefore, the crime rate is low and the prison system is just. Inequality correlates with crime all over the world, and um, so whatever we can do in terms of our social services to prevent is tremendous.
0: I wanted to um, give you the opportunity, because I love hearing authors say their own words. Would you just uh, read the last paragraph in your book as a conclusion to this interview?
1: Sure. The key is to keep marching. Justice work is ultimately a grand redundancy, restlessly demanding more of itself. More labor, more movement, more struggle, more victories and losses. And that work is powered by the potent thing I strap on daily like a life vest, the thing that buoys me and keeps my spirit alive with mission and meaning, hope.
0: Thank you very much.
1: Thank you.